If you have a Bible, uh, I'd love you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus chapter 25. We're going to take the time to read uh, the whole chapter, all 40 verses. It says this, The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering from me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, and another type of durable leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastplate. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Have them make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out, and make a gold molding around it. Cast four gold rings for it and fasten them to its four feet, with two rings on one side and two rings on the other. Then make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry it. The poles are to remain in the rings of this ark. They are not to be removed. Then put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law which I will give you. Make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide. And make the two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. Make the cherubim of one piece with the cover at the two ends. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking forward the cover. Place the cover on top of the ark and put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law that I will give you. There above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant law, I will meet with you and give you all the commandments for the Israelites. Make a table of acacia wood, two cubits long, a cubit wide and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold and make a gold mounting around it. Also make around it a room of handbreadth wide and put a gold molding on the rim. Make four gold rings for the table and fasten them to the four corners where the four legs are. The rings are to be close to the rim to hold the poles used in carrying the table. Make the poles of acacia wood, overlay them with gold and carry the table with them. And make its plates and dishes of pure gold, as well as its pitchers and bowls for the pouring out of offerings. Put the bread of the presence on this table to be before me at all times. Verse 31, make a lampstand of pure gold. Hammer out its base and shaft and make its flower-like cups, buds and blossoms of one piece with them. Six branches are to extend from the sides of the lampstand, three on one side and three on the other. Three cups shaped like almond flowers with buds and blossoms are to be on one branch, three in the next branch, and the same for all six branches extending from the lampstands. And on the lampstand there are to be four cups shaped like almond flowers with buds and blossoms. One bud shall be under the first pair of branches extending from the lampstand, a second bud under the second pair, and a third bud under the third pair, six branches in all. The buds and branches shall all be of one piece with the lampstand, hammered out of pure gold. Then make it seven lamps and set them up on it so that they light the space in front of it. Its wick trimmers and trays are to be of pure gold. A talent of pure gold is to be used for the lampstand and all these accessories. See that you make them according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. 
Great, thank you very much. Please take a seat. Turn to uh, Exodus and let me pray. Father, as we turn now to your word, uh, we pray for your spirit to uh, breathe through these words that we might hear the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might hear him speaking words of comfort and invitation to us. In his name we pray. Amen. Are you looking forward to going home? I've probably not been away for that long, have you? I mean, it's quite fun to be away, isn't it? But, you know, home, home. It's nice, isn't it? Homely. Uh, everything is uh, familiar and safe. It's where you can kick your shoes off and put your feet up on the sofa. Uh, I love being at home. Uh, so, whenever my, uh, so whenever I go, whenever I go away and I come back, and I say, there's always a moment where I go to my wife, Helen. You know what she says? It's good to be home. She says, yes, it's good to be home. But home isn't good news for everyone, is it? Actually, uh, home can be a place of loss, a reminder of a loved one who's no longer there. For some people, home can be a place of threat. It's the, it's the place of violence or abuse. And so perhaps you long for home, but not the home you have now. You long for a better home, a, a true home. You long to hear the words, welcome home. Uh, in that passage that we read in Exodus 25, verse 8, God says, Let them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. <coughs> this is God saying, I'm coming home. I'm going to make my home among you. Uh, and then in verse 9, he says, Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. And so then we get several chapters of instruction. Uh, we get detailed instructions of the furnishings in verse 25. And then the tabernacle itself in verse, uh, sorry, not verse uh, 25, chapter 25. The tabernacle itself in chapter 26. Then the, the courtyard in 27. Then the priestly garments in 28, then in 29, the consecration of those priests, and then in chapter 30, the altar of incense. And just when you've recovered your breath from all of that, in chapter 35, it starts all over again as we kind of get it repeated with a description of actually the Israelites actually making it, putting it together. Why all this detail? What's it all about? Well, to try and make sense of it, I actually want to start with another reading. So turn with me to Exodus 30. I want us to start by thinking about one particular item of furnishing, the altar of incense. If we can nail this, I think we'll, we'll, we'll have cracked it, okay? So let me read um, Exodus 30, 1 to 10. And uh, listen carefully and see if you can work out what's going on. 
In fact, just see if you can work out what it's for. Okay, it's just that's quite a simple thing in there, right? Verse 1, chapter 30. Make an altar of acacia wood for burning incense. It is to be square, a cubit long and a cubit wide, and two cubits high. It's horns of one piece with it. Overlay the top and all the sides and the horns with pure gold and make a gold molding around it. Make two gold rings for the altar below the molding, two on each of the opposite sides, to hold the poles used to carry it. Make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Put the altar in front of the curtain that shields the Ark of the Covenant Law before the atonement cover that is over the tablets of the Covenant Law where I will meet with you. Aaron must burn fragrant incense on the altar every morning when he tends the lamps. He must burn incense again when he lights the lamps at twilight so that incense will burn regularly before the Lord for the generations to come. Do not offer on this altar any other incense or any burnt offering or grain offering, and do not pour a drink offering on it. Once a year Aaron shall make atonement on its horns. This annual atonement must be made with the blood of the atonement sin offering for the generations to come. It is most holy to the the Lord. Okay, let's pick out some of the key facts. First of all, it's quite small. I don't know what you think when you think of an altar, uh, but this one's about three foot high and about one and a half foot square. In fact, it's pretty much the size of this lectern. It's a pretty good version of the altar of incense, okay? Uh, so just, what do you think that's for? It, it's not for... It's pretty, you got, you got a bit of a hint that it's not for offering a sacrificed animal. It's not really big enough. The, the actual altar was about two yards square, so it's a bit bigger than my span. You, you know, you can, you can fit a good carcass on that, can't you? You're not going to get one on here. Too small. So what is the altar of incense for, you ask? Good question. We'll come back to that. Second thing to think about it, it's covered in gold. All over. And that's significant because gold is only used within the tabernacle. It's only used of stuff that is close to the presence of God in this whole sort of setup. Third thing, it's got some rings on either side here. And that's because it's portable. It's made to have poles put through so you can lift it and carry it. And that's because this tabernacle, well, that's, that's true of everything that's built in the tabernacle. It's built with transportation in mind. Because this tabernacle is a symbol of God's presence with his people. And they're on the move. So the tabernacle and all the stuff in it has to be movable. Because God is on the move with his people. Next thing to notice is its location, verse 6. Put the altar in front of the curtain that shields the Ark of the Covenant law. Okay, so this this is where it gets a bit uh, crazy, because uh, the only way I think I can do this is to to recreate the tabernacle in this room. Should have thought about this beforehand, shouldn't I? There we go. So what? So the tabernacle is a big room called the, the Holy Place. And for our purposes, that's going to be this room. So all of you people are in the Holy Place, okay? It's pretty good going, by the way. So that room is the Holy of Holies. That's where the Ark of the Covenant is. 
That's symbolic. That's where the presence of God is symbolically. Okay? It's a bit smaller than it, you know, by comparison. It's a bit smaller than this room, about half the size of this room. This, this, uh, half the size of the whole. Anyway, you get the idea. And then in between the two is this curtain. Okay? So nice little gap there. But no, that's just curtain. And the altar of incense sits in the holy place. So it sits in this room, but sits right in front of the curtain right kind of next to where God is, as it were, uh, but in front of the curtain. You got, got that? Okay, let's see if we can get back to um, some kind of semblance of order. Uh, right in front of that curtain. Okay. So, what is it for? Well, we know what it's not for, and we had a hint of it when we looked at the size, but verse 9 says explicitly, it's not for animal sacrifice. What we're told is that Aaron is to put fresh incense on this altar of incense every morning and every evening. Look at verse 7 and 8, so that the incense will burn regularly before the Lord for the generations to come. So what is it doing? It is producing a cloud of smoke. All the time, every morning, every evening, regularly, continually, for all generations. I'm not being funny here. It's basically a smoke machine. Okay? Its job is to make a continual cloud of smoke. Now, where have we seen smoke in the story before? I've just, that's not a rhetorical question. On oh, Mount Sinai, very good, some of you are awake. Exodus 19, verse 18, Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The mountain is covered with smoke. Why? Because the Lord has descended on it in fire. In a sense, God himself is the smoke machine at Mount Sinai. And he's creating this cloud of smoke to hide his glory, to hide his, the sight of his glory from his people because it's dangerous to see. It's a kind of protecting his people from the blinding sight of his holiness. And the altar of incense recreates that moment. Its smoke, we're told in verse 8, burns before the Lord. It's there to surround God's presence, to protect us from God's holiness. In Leviticus 16, God says that on the day of atonement, the high priest is to put incense on the fire before the Lord, you know, stoke up the altar of incense, and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover so that he will not die. In that, on that day, when the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies, he's to stoke up the altar of incense so that there's this cloud of smoke so that the high priest, when he enters, will not die as he comes into God's presence. The point is, the tabernacle reproduces what took place at Mount Sinai. And that kind of reproduction of Mount Sinai 
is built into the architecture all over the tabernacle. As we said already, gold is used of everything within the tabernacle. Bronze is used for everything in the courtyard. So the altar is made of bronze. The, the big washing basins are made of bronze. And then silver is used basically for everything in between. All the transitions from courtyard to tabernacle are made from silver. So the tabernacle curtains have gold hooks at the top and silver bases at the bottom. Whereas the courtyard curtains have silver hooks at the top and bronze bases at the bottom. Can you sort of get that? So the connections are always gold to silver and silver to bronze. It's almost like sort of those color-coded fittings you get on some fancy tents, you know, so you know how to put it together. But it's more than just an assembly guide. Gold is always on top of silver. Silver is always on top of bronze. And sort of what it adds up to is a kind of three-dimensional, three-storied, three-layered model. I mean, tents, you can't have um, multi-story tents, but, but in the tabernacle, you kind of get a sort of symbolic version of that. Gold, silver, bronze. And they replicate the three zones of holiness at Mount Sinai. It's, it's replicating Mount Sinai. The, the courtyard replicates, replicates the plain where all the Israelites were camped, and, and that's where an Isra Israelites can go into the courtyard. The silver represents the, uh, the holy place. The, the, this area represents the, um, the mountain where the elders went. And then the holy of holies, the most holy place, the bit that's clouded, shrouded in cloud, represents the top of the mountain where only Moses went. The closest place to God. Now Mount Sinai was a key moment in the story of salvation. As we've seen, God had redeemed his people from Egypt, but he wasn't just setting slaves free from oppression. He rescued them so that they could be his people. He saved them for a relationship and he led them into his presence. And the tabernacle, that's what took place at Mount Sinai. And the tabernacle becomes a kind of portable reproduction of that moment. It, it's almost as if it had enabled them to carry Mount Sinai with them. A huge kind of architectural reminder of who God is and who they were as his people. But the tabernacle is not only recreating Sinai. Symbolism runs deeper than that. In 1971, an artist named Max Pinter created a pencil drawing entitled The Unending Attraction of Nature. And it depicts a sports stadium uh, with a forest in the middle. And the idea was that in some terrible dystopian future that sort of Max Pinter could imagine, you know, in terms of the direction we were heading in, the natural world is reduced to an object in a museum. Well, earlier on this year, the artist Klaus Littmann created a real-life version of that drawing. He moved 300 trees, some of them weighing six tons, 
onto into a football stadium in Austria. Uh, and it's a kind of classic football stadium with, you know, four sides of bank seating all the way around. But instead of a pitch in the middle, now there was a little forest in the middle. You can go and look it up online. It's quite fun. Well, in a sense, that's what the tabernacle was doing. It was depicting a garden in the middle of the wilderness. It was depicting it for God's people to see. So, for example, we've read about the lampstand. Think about the lampstand. What does it look like? It holds seven wicks. They're on sort of one branch in the middle and then three pairs either side. So it produces a lot of light. That's what it's for. But what does it look like? Well, chapter 5, verse 31 says, Make a lampstand of pure gold, hammer out its base and shaft, and make its flower-like cups, buds, and blossoms of one piece with them. Buds and blossoms, where did that come from? And it has branches. They're called branches. It's made to look like a tree, probably like an almond tree. It's, it's the, idea, the idea is that as we wander into the tabernacle, we, we suddenly feel like we're wandering into a garden. Perhaps even that we found the tree of life. So the tabernacle not only creates, recreates Mount Sinai, it also recreates the Garden of Eden. The place where God walked with humanity. The priests have pomegranates woven into the fabric of their robes. They are, the charge that they are given is to till and to keep. That, that it's, it's the same words that are given to Adam when he is given the garden to care for. They're to serve and keep the tabernacle, just as uh, Adam was to serve and keep the garden. The list of materials that we read there in chapter 25 for the tabernacle begins with gold and ends with onyx. In Genesis 2, when Aden is described, it's described as having loads of gold and onyx. Whatever onyx is, I don't know. Seven times in the account of creation, we read, God said, you know, God said, let there be light and there was light. Seven times in the instructions for the tabernacle, we're told, the Lord said to Moses, seven sets. And then both accounts, the creation of the tabernacle, the creation, the, the, the creation of the world and the making of the tabernacle end with a description of Sabbath. There's a very strong link between the two. In fact, in, that, in the song that Moses sings when Israel are led out through the Red Sea in Exodus 15, he says, you will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance the place, Lord, you made for your dwelling. The mountain of the Lord is Eden. And now God has rescued Israel to bring them again to his holy mountain, to bring them again to Eden, represented in the sanctuary. Or think about the curtain. Remember the altar of incense over there now? And there's a curtain there shielding it. Woven into the curtain are cherubim. In fact, in the passage that we read, there are cherubim on the ark as well, aren't there? Cherubim is a kind of angel. The only other reference, the only other time that a cherubim is mentioned, a cherub, 
just cherub doesn't work, does it, as a term? One of the cherubim is mentioned prior to the tabernacle is in Genesis 3 at the entrance to Eden. Here we are, back in Eden. The temple tabernacle has been built. Wonder of wonders, God is once again present with his people. Eden is being remade in the midst of God's people. It's as if as they wander through the wilderness, they carry with them a little piece of paradise. So let's just think where we've got to. We're standing in the tabernacle. In fact, you're all seated in the tabernacles. It's working quite well. And we've noticed that it reminds us of Mount Sinai, the moment in history where God met with his people. And we've noticed, too, that it reminds us of Eden, the place in history where God met with his people. So what? I mean, that's all very interesting, isn't it? But so what? Or maybe it isn't interesting. Even more important to ask, so what? Why, why bother making a rather substandard version of Sinai in Eden? And the point is, the tabernacle is designed to embody a promise and a problem. A promise and a problem. See, the tabernacle not only looks back to Sinai and Eden, it also looks forward. In fact, essentially, it is a promise. It's a promise written into archi- in, an ar- in, into, in architecture. It's God's God blueprint for the future. If you were here on... So I said on the first day, like, like we've been here forever. It does feel like that. It? If you were here yesterday, this time, only 24 hours ago, you remember I said that Exodus is like, it's like, um, it's like one of those little cardboard models that um, architects used to make before they did computer generated. Probably 3, 3D print it now these days, don't they? They used to make little cardboard models to show what a building would look like. That's what the tabernacle is. It's God's little architect's model showing us what his salvation, what his new creation will look like. It's designed to show us the future. Or think of it like this. The tabernacle is not the destination. Beautiful though it was, when you stood in the tabernacle, you had not arrived. Because the tabernacle is not the destination, it's the roadmap. Pointing the way. So where is it pointing? Well, again, think about what it is. What is a tabernacle? It's basically a tent. In fact, the word tabernacle is just the Latin word for tent. It's just a, it's just a pretentious way of saying tent, basically. Now, what do you think of when you hear the word tent? Let's break the game of word association. Probably you might think of holiday, you know, and you in your little camp, camping with your little Calagas stove, cooking up some beans or something. Or perhaps you think marquee, you know, you think of a wedding, you know, with trestle tables and uh, somebody handing out canapes or whatever. But if you'd asked an Israelite what came into their mind when you said tent, what would they have said? They'd have said home. That's where they were living, in tents. And now God is making his home among them. He's got a tent among their tents. 
It's as if God had come down at Mount Sinai and now he was moving into the neighborhood. Have them make a sanctuary for me, says in chapter 25, verse 8, and I will dwell among them. Make me a tent and I'll pitch it next to yours. But not only is the tabernacle the promise of a home, it's also the promise of a meal. Of course it is. You should be getting the hang of this by now. It's the promise of a meal. Every home has a meal table, and God's home is no different. Nothing, nothing symbolizes, I think, nothing symbolizes home. Maybe a sofa does but these days, but nothing symbolizes home quite so powerfully as a meal table. This is where our family gathers. This is where guests are welcomed as they share food. And here in God's prototype home, there's a table spread with food. We read about it in chapter 25. Look again at verse 30. Put the bread of the presence on this table to be before me at all times. Now, it's not there because God is hungry. Often in ancient temples, food was presented to the gods. In fact, you might, in many parts of the world where you can still see little shrines with offerings of food. The job of the worshipper is to kind of supply food to the gods. But not our God. In fact, where have we met bread before in the story? This, this, is, not, this, this is, again, not a rhetorical question, nor is it a very hard question if you were at least half awake this morning. Where have we met bread before in the story? The manna coming down from heaven. Who is supplying it? God. Who's he giving it to? Us. And, and, and enough for everyone. Everyone is satisfied. Our God, the living God, is completely self-sufficient. He is life in himself. And so he doesn't demand from us. He gives to us. And the bread of presence is a sign of God's generosity. A permanent sign that God invites us to enjoy community with him. To eat a meal in his presence. It is the bread of presence. That's what it's called. Of God's presence. It's there as an invitation to receive from him and to sit down and to eat with him. In Leviticus, we're told that uh, the bread of presence involved 12 loaves that were replaced each week. One, I think, for every tribe in the, of the people of Israel. It's a sort of picture of, of food for everyone. And for us, that promise is embodied in the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is our bread of presence. Christ is present with us at communion, not physically present, but that doesn't mean that it's a kind of pretend presence. He's really and truly present by the Holy Spirit. It is, after all, the Lord's Supper that we eat. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, we eat it at the Lord's table. In other words, he is the host. And he's inviting us to eat with him. It's a promise, a sign of his eternal presence, of an eternal meal in an eternal home. 
So the tabernacle represents a promise. It's the promise of a way back home, back home to God. A promise of a meal in God's presence. But the tabernacle also represents a problem. Problem we've met before, the problem of God's holiness. Imagine for a moment using the tabernacle to come into God's presence. So you go, you start off in the courtyard, which is in that direction for our purposes. And then you come into the tabernacle, into the holy place, this bit. And now you're heading towards the most holy place. What do you meet? Well, you meet a cloud of smoke, first of all. We've worked that out by now, haven't we? You meet a cloud of smoke, veiling, as it were, God's holy presence. And then you meet a curtain, barring the way. And just to make sure you get the message, woven into the curtain is a cherubim. And in Eden, the cherubim guarded the way back to Eden with a flaming sword. And so between them, they're like flashing no entry signs. Danger ahead. God's holiness is hazardous. So on one hand, God's, God's gracious intent is clear. He wants his people, he wants a people who are his people, a people who live in his presence, who enjoy his love. But the problem is also clear. He is a holy God, and we are sinful people who must be shielded from his presence. And that's kind of embodied in the architecture of the tabernacle. We have these symbols of God's inaccessibility that turn the curtain across the tabernacle. On the, you know, on the, let's get this around. On the, which way around is it? On this side, your right hand side as you're coming in, is the bread of presence. On the left-hand side is the uh, lamp, and they're inviting you in, saying, come and have a meal. But then, wham, you've got the curtain, and you've got the cloud. Home is so close and so far away. The tabernacle is so full of promise and so full of danger. How are we going to get past the curtain? Well, we have to step outside first. We have to go back into the courtyard, which is somewhere over there, okay? Again, the truth, the answer is embodied in the architecture. As you come into the courtyard, so this is even before, before you even get to the tabernacle itself, as you come into the courtyard, the first thing you meet is the altar, two yards wide, bronze altar. Dominates the way in. It's the first thing you see. The only way home is through the altar, through the sacrifice that it represents. And of course, it's only a picture. When we read about the altar, we, we discover that there's all these, uh, it's got a kind of grill, so that when you burn, all the ashes fall down, and then you've got all these utensils for digging them out, so you can, because you're going to have to do it again the next day, and again, and again, and again, over and over again. Hundreds of times. The altar is a kind of point of the solution, but it's not the solution itself. Now listen to Matthew's description of the death of Jesus. When Jesus had cried out in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. 
as Jesus dies, the architecture of the temple of, is radically rearranged. That temple, that curtain there, just is, is disappears, it's torn. The way home to God is open. And that way is Jesus. Because Jesus is the sacrifice, the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. The book of Genesis says that the cherubim that guarded the way back to Eden were placed on the east side of the garden. So humanity is east of Eden. This is north, by the way, for our purposes. Anyway, don't worry about where, where it is, really. For our purposes, this is north, this is east. Humanity is is that side of Eden. We're east of Eden. But the temple, the tabernacle, is, is pointing east. And the door is open. And now the curtain is gone. Welcoming us home. Inviting us to come. And when you come home, there's a light on. Because the light is permanently lit. It's just here by me. Aaron and his sons are to keep the lamps burning before the Lord from evening till morning. This is to be a lasting ordinance among the Israelites for the generations to come. Exodus 27:21. So there's a way in through sacrifice. There's a courtyard that's open towards us. There's a light that's always on, welcoming us home. And the meal is always spread. You get the message? Sometimes if I come home late at night after speaking somewhere, the, the house is cold and dark. Everyone has gone to bed. I brush my teeth with my coat on. <laughs> I stumble around in the bedroom because I don't want to switch the light on and wake my wife. And then inevitably I bang my shin. <laughs> let out a cry of pain, you know, while you work out what happens. What happens when you come home to God? The light is on and there's a meal on the table. Always, always. Somebody waiting for your return. If this evening you feel far from God, come home, come home today. The light is on. God is there to welcome you. There's bread on the table. God is inviting you to eat with him and befriend him. So that's the curtain sorted. What are we going to do about the cloud? Remember, there's a cloud on Mount Sinai to protect us from God. There's a cloud in the tabernacle to protect us from God. But in both cases, there is someone who passes through the cloud. On Mount Sinai, it's Moses mediator who meets with God on our behalf. In the tabernacle, it's the priest. In fact, not only does the priest once a year go through the curtain, through the cloud, into the Holy of Holies, we're told that he, he carries on his breastplate the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. So it's almost symbolically carrying God's people into God's presence. But those two people are not the last people to pass through clouds into God's presence. Who else passes through clouds 
into God's presence. It's a squirrel. You know that joke? It's the, um, somebody does. The, uh, there's a joke that uh, a, a Sunday school teacher asks, what's a small little, little animal with a fluffy tail? And um, some, one little kid puts it out, it's Jesus. Although, although it sounds more like a squirrel to me. The, the joke being that the answer to every question is Jesus. Okay? Well, this time it's Jesus. Jesus at his ascension. What happens at the ascension of Jesus? He, he rises up. He ascends up through the clouds into the presence of God. It's not, that's not some accident. It's not just that it happened to be a cloudy day, okay? Just be clear about this. That is highly significant and important. Jesus passes through the clouds into the presence of God, just like Moses did on Mount Sinai, just like the priests did in the, in the high priest did on the Day of Atonement. They're a sign that Jesus has ascended, not to the top of Mount Sinai, but what Moses saw there. You, know, you notice how everything is built according to what, what you have seen up here? Jesus has ascended not into the most holy place, but what the most holy place represented. Jesus has ascended into heaven itself. He has come as our high priest before the heavenly throne of God. Before the judge seated in judgment, and the verdict is righteousness. And as long as Jesus is in heaven, he bears our names on his heart as a kind of continual memorial to the Lord, just as the high priest bore the names of the tribes of Israel. When God looks on Christ in heaven, he sees your name. He sees you seated with Christ, in Christ. Yourself, your identity wrapped up in Christ. Your name, if you're a Christian, if you put your faith in Christ, your name is in heaven. And it's not on some database. It's not even in some sort of ancient book or something. It is tied to the person of Jesus. Jesus is there for you, guaranteeing your place before God. But I think it's better than that. Look ahead over the remaining years of your life. Well, we don't know what's that going to look like, do we? We don't know what problems you may face. Financial hardship, perhaps. Mental illness. Loneliness. Bereavement. Sickness. You can't be sure that you will stand firm throughout those trials. You don't know what doubts you may have. You don't know what temptations you may face. But this you can know. Right now and forever, Jesus is in heaven, and he bears your name. You may lose your grip on him, but he will not lose his grip on you. His, your name is written on his heart. 
The writer, hymn writer Augustus Toplady puts it like this, My name from the palms of your hands, eternity will not erase. Impressed on your heart it remains in marks of indelible grace. And so the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and the full assurance that faith brings. Let me pray. Father, I pray now for us all that, uh, that we might come as we are invited to do. I pray for any here who have not made that step of faith. And I pray that this evening they would hear that invitation to come home, home to you, to your uh, presence to your love with the promise of a meal in your presence of, of fellowship and relationship that they would come through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ through the blood that opens up that way and for all of us Father I pray that we would have that reassurance that faith brings as the writer of Hebrews puts it that our names are already written in heaven. And that while our Savior is there, we can never leave. And his life is indestructible. And so our future is indestructible. May we have that confidence, that reassurance. I pray for those who are struggling with guilt or shame or doubt or fear. Please, would you speak to them now through your word to reassure them that their future is safe in Christ. Amen. <clears throat>